Hey, Steve here. You know how sometimes you meet somebody who does something interesting, but as you get to know them, you learn that actually there's a lot more to them than that one thing that got your attention in the first place? Well, that explains John Neville. I reached out to John because he's on one of the mailing lists for sound recordists that I belong to. His work intrigued me, so I asked him if he'd be a guest on the show. You know, like many people that I interview on this program, John's a wildlife sound recordist. I asked him the usual questions, but as we got into the interview, I had to call an audible. You like that? That's a podcast joke. Anyway, I called it because John was going off script. Suddenly, I'm discovering that this guy that I'm having a very interesting conversation with is also a physical therapist, an author. He was a city councilman for more than 20 years. He spends months in a motorhome every year with his wife, Heather, traveling around North America recording wildlife. He has produced a large number of CDs that are full of his bird recordings, and he has an outsized impact on his country. And I'm not talking about the U.S. John lives in British Columbia, in western Canada, on an island. And man, does he have a story to tell. In fact, let's start with that. Who is John Neville? Steve, I'm now an old man. I think I'm 79. I grew up in England, uh, and... uh, I went to college in London to be a a physiotherapist. I think you'd say a physical therapist and settled down, got married, two kids. And we were living at Poole in the south coast of England. I joined Dorset Naturalists and a few other things. I think it was in 1974, 75, that winter, there was a big economic downturn in, in Britain. And I lost about a third of my private practice income. And we decided we had two young girls. We might want to move and look for better opportunities for them. So eventually, to cut a long story short, I applied to some of the places in our physiotherapy journal where uh, my qualifications were accepted, uh, New Zealand and British Columbia, for example. And I think... I was lucky and got four of the five jobs I applied for and eventually ended up in Nelson, B.C. in 1975. And uh, eventually we moved to uh, Salt Spring, one of the Gulf Islands, on the west coast of Canada, where, where I'm sitting now. Somewhere along the way, John developed an interest in the sounds of nature. I asked him where that started, and the answer might surprise you. I have to credit my grandfather, Eric, significantly. I I was always uh, interested in the birds around me, but he had a small farm in Worcestershire in England on the River Severn, and uh, he would introduce me to bird songs and recognize them visually, and uh, I'd go hunting with him, and sometimes I was the the gun dog and went to bring back the rabbit or the pheasant, etc., and he'd point out foxes and deer to me. And uh, perhaps the thing that triggered me most was that Grandad always kept his door open. In the winter, he'd have a fire burning, but he'd keep the door open, and robins would come in onto the table visit the butter dish and uh, presumably get some some energy and protein out of the butter dish, they'd look briefly at us and then fly away. And he always called them Bob. I'm sure it was quite a few generations of robins. But uh, that particular 
experience of being around a bird that actually looked at you briefly and interacted with us drew me into nature and uh, eventually into sound. Now, as I said earlier, there's a lot more to John than just a recorder, a microphone, and an intense interest in the sounds of the natural world, although we're going to come back to that shortly. Along the way, he got involved in local politics, and he spent quite a few years on the city council, where he was involved in a few projects that made a difference for his community. It started in Nelson. There are obviously a lot of stories in 20 years of city councils, but I'll keep it down to three or four. Back in the late 70s, I think 79, I went to a municipal conference and listened to an architect giving a talk about old buildings and their importance historically and very often architecturally, and they should be saved. And I knew we had a lot in Nelson, uh, including some Rattenberries. Rattenberry designed a quite famous legislative building in Victoria, BC. And there were four of his buildings in Nelson, two of them really good ones, the courthouse, the Bank of Montreal, and two lesser ones, plus a great many others in stone and wood. Uh, my own office, the front of it was was definitely heritage. And I took it to council and proposed that we develop a heritage theme in Nelson. And that was accepted, but of course, no money attached, so it wasn't really going to go anywhere. But we did agree that the province could do a count of the buildings and put the information into a book which they did. They made a book, and there were over 300 buildings in Nelson, A, B, and C categories. I think my own office was a B. And that sat on the shelf for a while. Then Nelson had a downturn in its economy. About four different significant buildings left for a variety of reasons. And the merchants in the downtown started to get anxious and wonder how they could uh, develop things to bring back some business. We mentioned the heritage theme, and they were lukewarm because they would have to spend some money as well as city council and the province to do it. So it sat for a while longer. Then a developer came along and proposed a mall, which would have free parking and competition for the downtown core. That triggered off the heritage theme. They were willing to give it a try then. And so it gradually got done towards the end of the 1980s. We buried all the electrical wires. Uh, we persuaded some people to take the tin or aluminum off their beautiful stone buildings and expose the stone again. And we put in lampposts again that you would have seen at the turn of the 19th century in Nelson. So we had the theme along the main street. In addition, being a, a physiotherapist, I added another element. I persuaded uh, council that we could ramp the curbs so that wheelchairs, pushchairs, etc., could more easily uh, transfer to the sidewalks and also persuaded them to put in audible signals at their main intersection for visually impaired people to cross the road. Further, some of our buildings 
believe it or not, even the hospitals were difficult to get in for people with wheelchairs, even on crutches. So we got them to agree to put in automatic doors. But John's work went far beyond a focus on buildings and accessibility. You might be aware of the Columbia River Treaty that took place in 1964. And in Canada, four storage dams were built to hold the water back for various reasons so that it could be used at the best time of year for producing electricity, for agriculture, and to prevent flooding. In the Kootenays, where I lived, this meant that about 15 million acre-feet of water was backed up and destroyed the usefulness of a lot of land, like uh, farms and so on, and uh, in a few cases, small communities and graveyards and other things. When the water went out from behind these dams, you had hundreds of acres of uh, barren mudflats and tree stumps, etc., very ugly, unproductive, and very much despised and disliked by a lot of people in the Kootenays. One of my jobs on city council was to be on the regional district, which is like a county council. I was on an economic development committee, and we proposed to the main board that they approach the provincial government to see if we could get a small share of the funds being accrued through the uh, Columbia River Treaty. And much to our delight and surprise, the Mike Harcourt government in, I think it was 1995, agreed. And the sum, I don't think, was immediately up to today's level. But the Kootenai Basin Trust, as it's called now, receives $50 million a year to restore and improve economics around the Kootenai and Columbia rivers in the Kootenai region, which uh, was a great thrill to me. And then there was the Creston Valley. The Creston Valley is where the Kootenai River flows into Kootenai Lake. There's this beautiful valley that uh, was the subject of my second CD, and it has lots of wetlands. And over time, the wetlands have been somewhat controlled into uh, about 17,000 acres of marshes with dikes and pumps so that when there's too much water around in the spring, they pump out. In the light summer and early fall, when the waters tend to dry up, the pumps can be reversed and pump water back in. So the water is always about 18 inches deep. While I was doing my recording project, 95, I think, for whatever reason, the federal and provincial governments stopped funding. And it was quite astonishing because it's internationally recognized and has a Ramsar status. So it's well-known and valuable nature, as well as good farmland. And when I came to put my project together, I went to uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, CBC in Toronto, and used their recording studio to put it together. Down the corridor was uh, the the biggest radio station, the, the biggest program in Canada at the time called Morningside. And one morning, Heather was chatting to the man who looked after the uh, recording studios. And when he heard the story behind the lack of funding for the Creston Valley, he slipped a note to the Morningside program. And I found myself 
on their program the next morning explaining all about this. And to cut a long story a bit shorter, funding was restored a few months later after it had been broadcast all across the nation. For the last seven years of his time on the city council, John was the chair of the electrical department. We had our own distribution system, and we also produced about two-fifths or three-fifths of our own electricity, which saved the community quite a lot of money. It added up when you rationed it out to about $300 of extra value per household for, for services. Our generating plant was becoming old and uh, inefficient. We had four generators, two had totally stopped working back from the 1890s, and the, the most recent one from 48 was still good. So, and one was, the third one was a bit indifferent. So after some discussion with city council, they accepted my recommendation. And after some opposition had been accepted, we took it to referendum and it passed with about 68% in favor. And it meant that we built a new variable generation plant from Germany. It was the biggest project to date in Nelson, I think it cost $8 million. And it meant that when there was extra water going through the dam, we could take advantage of it with this variable generator. So that that was a big project and it meant Nelson got more electricity. So what John did during his long career was to marry together two rather strange bedfellows, local politics and his growing passion for the natural world, which started with his delight at the robins pecking at his grandfather's butter dish. Some of the things he learned along the way became quite useful later when he joined and ultimately became the president of BC Nature. BC Nature is an umbrella group of naturalist clubs. When I became president, there were about 50 clubs around the province, all volunteers, and their numbers was significantly dropping. So I made a commitment to visit as many as I could, and I probably got to about 40 of the 50 clubs, found out they wanted to be listened to, they wanted appreciation, they wanted help with some of their projects. The Umbrella Group has a a foundation, provides some funds, and they wanted information, nature information. And so as soon as I understood this, I put together a talk with some of my bird recordings. So I always gave a talk before we had a chat with the president and other members of the club, found out what they were doing and encouraged them to work with other clubs as well as BC Nature itself. And that moved along quite well. We, in fact, increased the membership over four years by about 2,000, I think it was. You know, from 4,000 to 6,000, it was a significant fraction. So that was good. And I encouraged the magazine editor, to make some changes so that we had more nature articles and not just reports in it. So it's become an interesting nature magazine, which I must say I prefer anyway, but it is what the members wanted, and that's the key, providing them with lots of information about nature, good talks when they come to the annual convention, and good articles in the magazine, etc., You know, one of the things you learn when you're an active naturalist is that a bird is not a bird is not a bird, if you'll let me use that phrase. 
Just because they call that bird over there a robin in the UK doesn't mean it's the same bird in Canada or anywhere else for that matter. When I came to Canada, I suddenly found that apart from the sparrows and the starlings and the pigeons, I didn't know any of the species of birds. And that was troubling to me. And there were some recordings available. There were some records from Cornell, but they, they tended to be for eastern U.S. and Canada. So I eventually started not only to look for places with sounds, I contacted Cornell and I did a couple of ornithology courses and I went on their field recording workshop in the uh, Sierra Nevadas in California. While I was learning simple things like how to focus your microphone and listen in the earphones till the sound was spot on in the earphones, the director then, his name was Greg Budney, he's retired now, when it wasn't his turn to record, he'd be off in the woods himself and we'd get chatting sometimes and he'd say, this morning I, I got some muskrats copulating, for example. And I thought, wow, can I ever get that close to nature? And I, I focused back on my Bob Robin and, and, and my granddad's cottage and was kind of envious. And um, when I managed to obtain this, this minor skill from the Sierras, I came back and decided, could I produce a CD in addition to recording for my own benefit? And so I decided, why not? It's a great target. So I, I did one of the Kootenays and then I did one of Creston and I've gone on ever since. I produced CDs of the West Coast, the Rockies, Eastern Canada, the prairies in the US and Canada, the central boreal forest in Ontario and Manitoba, including Hudson Bay, and the western boreal forest around the Great Lakes. Then on request, I produced several other varieties, two CDs for people who just wanted to hear nature in the background and didn't want my voice. So I produced a couple of those and I produced a guide all across Canada. It says Bird Songs of Canada, but it's just the same for the Northern States too. And I did that Cornell style, just announcing the name of the species. They focus primarily on professional naturalists or, or biologists, so they don't go into descriptions. I did that on my uh, guide to, I think there are 435 species on, on the four CDs. Yep, 435 species on four CDs. If you're a birder, or you want to be, or you just like listening to the calls of birds, you need this set. The CDs are still available from nevillerecording.com, and you can also stream them on Apple and Spotify. Needless to say, John Neville is a man of varied talents and passions. And as often happens, his priorities began to shift. And I, for one, am rather glad about that. I did enjoy parts of my work as a physiotherapist. I, I was mainly treating necks and backs and referred pain from discs and joints, etc. But if you can imagine with city council meetings as well, and having to do a fair bit of reading and research sometimes before I went to the meeting to make a decision. I knew pretty well where I was going to be all the time, and I had to perform on time all through the week uh, without any let-ups. Then I chose, and my wife with me, Heather, that I wanted to record nature. And we'd get up early on Friday and Saturday morning, record, drive home on 
Sunday night. And that, those distances gradually got further. And so uh, whilst it was a pleasure, it was also another stress. And we eventually decided that we would give up two months a year of earning a living directly and other stresses and go recording and produce CDs if we could. Those trips marked the beginning of a wonderful phase of endless adventures. We were on the Platte River in uh, Nebraska uh, in the spring when about 500,000 sandhill cranes gather before heading north. We were taken out to a little box, which was called a hide, tucked in for the night. I first set up my recorder outside, my microphone outside, got in the box, opened a little trap door so we could hear what was going on outside. And I got some good recordings of flocks of sandhill cranes coming and going on the banks of the river. And then there was a storm in the night. I think uh, I had to get out and stand my microphone up again a couple of times. But in the morning, the storm produced some injured birds. And one bird, for example, close to us had broken a wing and another one a leg. So neither was able to get in a position to fly. And we were touched by the number of flocks of birds, not just the one that they belonged to, because it happened quite a few times, birds, flocks would circle them, and one or more, more birds would come down close and call to them. And it was really touching to, to, to see that connection between the birds in one species. The Dempster Highway is a 460-mile gravel road, well-maintained but gravel nonetheless, that winds through the Ogilvy and Richardson mountain ranges, crosses the Continental Divide three times, and the Arctic Circle once on its way from Dawson City through Fort Mac on the way to the McKenzie River and the McKenzie River Delta and the Arctic Ocean. John and Heather drove it, recording all the way. But it's also a place that yields some amazing stories. The Dempster is a gravel highway. It was 734 kilometers long in the Yukon and Northwest Territories. Since I've been on it, they've added another 200 kilometers from Inuvik, which was the top end when I went on it, to Tuktoyuktuk, uh, along the east side of the Mackenzie River Delta to the actual Arctic Ocean. For, for recordists, it's a beautiful road uh, because it's so quiet, particularly before the two ferry crossings at the northern end crossing the Peel and Mackenzie Rivers are open, which doesn't happen till early in June. So we were there all through May, very little traffic. If a vehicle came along the road, I could usually hear it for at least five minutes. It was so quiet. There was a wide variety of uh, environments. The first uh, 100K were in Boreal Forest in, in, uh, in the Tintina Trench, which is the northern end of the Rocky Mountain Trench with the uh, Klondike River flowing in the bottom of it. Along that spell, I can remember recording uh, Hermit Thrush, which is a delightful song, and Merlin and uh, Robins, of course, and uh, several woodpeckers, etc. And then as the road starts to climb into these southern Ogilbys, 
you reach a campground called the Tombstone Campground, and it's the only place in the uh, Yukon part of the territory that was glaciated during the Ice Age. There's, there's a very obvious trail, not very wide, that goes through what is the campground now and down the steep valley to, to the river below a rubble from a glacier that came from the Tombstone Mountains in the background. There, the uh, willow ptarmigan, that when they become really territorial, they not only challenge other males, they challenge the motorhome. Uh, they'd stand in front of us as we approach driving along and we'd stop and they'd stay on the road six feet in front of you and then they, they might give way. But they were kind of easy to record because they, they, the, the males would come out on the road to me uh, when I was walking and I could get a good recording. And then over that mountain range into the Blackstone River Valley, which was probably the best place for birding, a lot of smaller and bigger lakes. I remember the, the beautiful, eerie cries of the red-throated loons. The Dempster adventure prompted John to write a book, Traveling the Dempster. In it, he recounts his adventures along the road in a camper with Heather, but he also tells a few other stories of the humankind. I documented my recordings for Verse Songs of the Arctic, which initially was why we were there. And then I wrote up a journal, which eventually became the book, which I wasn't really planning a book at the time, but there were so many interesting stories in that region, like Whitehorse and Dawson City had the gold rush at the end of the 19th century, and characters like Robert Service and Klondike Kate, and amazing characters, and the stories, and the, the headquarters for the Mounties for the Yukon and British Columbia were at Dawson City. And then near Eagle Plains Hotel, I remember standing on the bridge, looking out along the, the Eagle River, and that was about 50 kilometers downstream was where the Mad Trapper came to his end. And the, the Mad Trapper was an amazing character. He had been in jail in the, in the States and came north on the Mackenzie River, Rat River. He started to pull people's trap lines. And when the Mounties went to investigate him, he started shooting at them, and uh, that expanded into a full-scale mounty hunt. And he was climbing cliffs with a 200-pound pack on his back, and the mounties were following him. This was in 1931-32, that winter, and he was climbing up the east side of the Richardson Mountains, which had all been glaciated on the east side. So steep cliffs and canyons. I have a job with a 50-pound bag of cement or a 50 or 60 pound rock on my rock walls. He was carrying 200 pounds and climbing and hunting and escaping from the mountains. And uh, they brought in uh, dog sleds and eventually the first airplane, it shot his second Mountie, I think. They brought in a guy called Walt May and his plane. He'd been a, uh, an ace pilot during the First World War to help track him down 
and to fly in supplies. And this went on for nearly two months. Because radio had just come into being, it was the prime story in not just up in the Arctic, thousands of people in New York and all across the States were tuning in to this incredible story of will the Mounties get their man? They did, as you'll find when you read the book, Traveling the Dempster. Trust me, you want to read it. I love meeting people whose life is so deliberate, and John is one of those people. He and Heather had dreams, but those dreams became real because they made them so. There's a lot to admire about that. In fact, our interview was probably three times longer than what you've heard here, so you may hear from John again in another episode. I asked him for a final comment, and he had this to say. A lady emailed me one day and said, we've been listening to your CDs. And she said, my four-year-old son walks around the yard now and he hears a bird and he holds his hand out like a microphone and says, I'm John Neville. (laughs) John Neville, British Columbia-based sound recordist, local politician, and author. His CDs are available from nevillerecording.com, or you can stream them on Apple Music and Spotify. His book, Traveling the Dempster, is available at bookstores or on Amazon. Thank you, John. I am glad there are people like you in this world, and I'm glad that you have Heather to keep you doing what you do. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.